Welcome to Honest Talk about heartbreak, dating, and relationships. Relationships. The podcast helping you navigate your path to happy ever after with your host, Rob McPhillips. Um, so tonight we were talking about the work of Helen Fisher, and Helen Fisher talks about relationships as being um, life's greatest prize. And so we talked about um, the different various formats of relationships, whether they were monogamous or whether they were, um, is it natural for us to be monogamous? Um, is promiscuity natural? Um, what's the, um, like what, what format of relationship works? How do um, our narratives affect the way that we relate? Um, and how does the history of patriarchy and social control, um, how does that affect our relationship? And essentially what, what we um, were trying to work out was which, is, which comes first, like the nature or nurture, um, and of course, both come nature works within a context of of nurture. Okay, um, all right. So so let's start tonight. So, um, so the topic tonight was um, life's greatest prize, and um, so this is really what Helen Fisher talks about. She says that life's greatest prize is finding a mate, and it's the way that we have children it's the way that we have companionship um and so we'll talk um through all aspects now helen fisher's work is probably the broadest um of all the the like there's loads of books on relationships but um they although you know like you've got five love languages um which is probably one of the best selling which is basically communication. You've got the Gottmans, which is about their shared house model. You've got lots of other people that talk about relationships. We talked about Stan Tatkin before, but that's attachment theory. So they all talk about a small section of it. Whereas what Helen Fisher's done is, is she's an anthropologist um, and biologist. And so she's looked from like, she goes back to 21 million years ago as to climate changes as to, you know that caused changes in uh primates that led to our the way that we um interact today um so i mean her books are why him why her why her why we stray why we love um so what i want to do to start with is because this so much so broad i was looking at you know what are the questions we can put in, in the breakout rooms and there's so much. So what I would like you to do is put in the chat box um, any particular questions that you would like to cover. So really what, um, so to give you some idea, uh, just as a hands up, who's read the blog post that summarizes it? Okay. Um, and so if you can write, um any questions that you have from that or anything that you'd like to talk about tonight um and we'll go from there so in if you're new down the bottom there's a chat box um and you can write in there 
um, anything that you're interested in talking about. <clears throat> okay, so just, um, and then we'll start tonight. So I'm just going to give you some housekeeping. Um, so what we're here for really is a safe place to explore. Um, safe place to explore ideas, to discuss uh, relationship ideas, and to come away with uh, some perspective that helps us in our relationships away from here. Um, if you can, if you can have your video on, um, so it just helps people see who they're talking to, especially when you go into the breakout rooms. Now, the discussion here is the audio is recorded, um, and so you can listen to any meetup that you haven't uh, attended. Um, but the breakout rooms are private. Um, so in the breakout room, you'll be in a small group, and it's just a chance to, to talk because in the main room, we can't all um, get a chance, and not everyone's comfortable talking to everyone else. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, right, so what we're going to do is we're going to discuss... Uh, some topics. We're going to go in breakout rooms, discuss them privately, um, and come back and share. Um, one couple of bits of housekeeping is um, one of the first, um, Errol was asked uh, a, couple, a couple of meetups ago about how he kept faith in dating in, in the face of uh, failure. Um, and he wrote, <coughs> he was kind enough to share down his ideas. Um, and <coughs> so there's a blog post, which I'll put in the chat uh, later, if you haven't had a chance to see it. Um, and he's here to answer any questions. Um, so we can bring that up if anyone uh, has anything to say. Um, in terms of etiquette, uh, we'll have one person talking at a time. And if you have something that you want to contribute, then just um, uh, put your hand up. Um, and if your camera's off, uh, you can put your, um, in. I think it's in reactions, isn't it? You can put your hand up or is it in participants for you? Um, okay, so uh, everyone's muted by default, um, just to block out background noise. If you want to jump in, just unmute yourself or put your hand up. Um, okay, so the idea of monogamy is, um, I've forgotten the central ideas, it's one, well, yeah, one spouse, one spouse, that's it. Um, so the idea of monogamy is one spouse. So um, from looking at all of history and and the nature of relationships depends on the culture that they're within. So patriarchal relationships are very different from hunter-gatherers, um, and she talks about that. She talks about basically the 10,000 years since we became agricultural and we moved from hunter-gatherers to um, farmers is really about um, ma both men and women needed each other. Um, and men were particularly needed because um, of the weight of the plough. Um, and so this is basically where patriarchy came from, because men had men were needed more. Um, and so 
when you look at patriarchy, it is really catering to men's fears. Um, it's controlling women. It's um, controlling the narrative. Um, and so um, making, so there's been, so when you look at, like the central, okay, the central evolutionary um, goals are, um, when you look at evolutionary psychology, the goals are for, for ma a man to perpetuate his genes um, and for a woman to ensure the safety of her children. So every woman pretty much knows that her children are hers. No man can really be sure. Um, and so when you look at um, taking away money independence from women, that's really about limiting access, their access and their freedom uh, to, um, to, to basically cheat. Um, so that the man knows whose children are, that his children are his. Um, okay, so one, so one, so that's really where monogamy uh, in a patriarchy has generally been that, unless men had the resources. Um, when men had the resources, it was only about like in cultures where uh, poly polygamy, multiple wives, is. Um, is enabled. It's only like five to ten percent of men who have the resources, and she uses the story a lot. Of she talked to a Nugini man who had three wives, I think, um, and she said, "Well, how many wives would you like?" And he said, "None." Um, and basically, she talks about the problems of jealousy because while you can, um, okay, I think we need to little backtrack to the central premise of. Um, Helen Fisher is that there are three drives. There's the sex drive, there's the romantic drive, and there's deep attachment. And so what she shows from her brain um, neuroscience research is that they operate on different different aspects. So there's they're driven by different hormones. Um but she says all three of them are core that they come from the um like the reptilian brain the core brain stem so they're as important to us as um hunger as first um and sh so she says that they're equally um equally important however they work independently of each other and so we can find someone attractive and be sexually attracted to them. But the romantic, uh, um, so she, she talks about, okay, so the sex drive is basically testosterone driven. Um, and so tested testosterone and estrogen, I think it is. Um, so that works on lust. Um, the romantic drive is I can't remember which dopamine and the romantic drive is about um, focusing on one person. So it's focusing your attention on one person. Um, and then the deep attachment she proposes is an idea is a, a mechanism to attach parents, which seems to be for about three or four years. 
because when she looks historically at relationships and she looks even like way back in the past that there tended to be she says all societies had a form of divorce it didn't used to have any stigma or shame to it it was just be like they're not happy together and about a third probably about a third of couples would divorce and they would just but they would always remarry which is why she says it's it's a instinctive drive and um so those three work independently of each other which is why um why we're why we're um why so many there's so much uh infidelity um and she looks back and she says that there's always been infidelity and it used to be quite um like she she gives examples of cultures where they sort of turn a blind eye to it sort of like italy um and um where unless it was blatant in their face um they just accepted that they all had other partners um so am i uh does that make it clear does anyone have any any um comments or but the discussion more or less this um ignores matriarchy um yeah matriarchy is, is uh it deals with it, it deals with the issue of infidelity in a way in a different way um can you can you talk a bit more about that okay um like for example that um group of people that tribe i can't remember the name in china near to the border with um nepal and tibet i think it is they have something called a walk in marriage and um the men don't live with the women and the women the children belong to the village because sometimes they don't even know who their fathers are and the men have to be invited to spend the night with a woman at, at her place and the, hence the walk in because then he walks back home to his mother every morning in the morning <laughs> and it can be a different matter another time and they're all they they're all okay the men don't fight each other in terms of jealousy over the particular woman because um i suppose those who are in favor would probably also have many partners but it seems to work out and the children belong to everybody in the village they so they're all parents of all the children then mm. you know mm. um yeah and there are cultures where there is a culture i can't remember which one it is but they believe that when a woman's pregnant she will try and mate with all the men in the village that have characteristics that she she wants her child to have and they believe that they all contribute to um like the child they um and so someone who's intelligent someone who's a great warrior someone who's kind someone who's this um and so there's also the idea that um which is one of the reasons they say like why why do women uh what's the, like why do women cheat or um and part of it is that they protecting um their children um if if everyone knew whose father uh who was the father of your child and they were rivals for power for resources in in that tribe they could be killed 
which is one of the reasons why um, um, monogamy is um, why Helen Fisher says monogamy is is basically the way that we work because while we can be poly poly polygam polyamorous or, or um, have different arrangements we haven't evolved past uh, jealousy um, and it's those basic so when she talks about relationships where there were multiple and she does talk about um, multiple husbands although that's that's a lot rarer um, there there's like children being poisoned there's wives fighting each other constantly um, and so it just seems to complicate things um, so her view is that um, the the best the one that works best is monogamy although she talks about because we want that commitment so it's commitment but also with clandestine affairs um I read, and, a, I read a really good book actually um it was called um sex at dawn and it was um, recommended by sarah pascoe actually a comedian um and yeah she was likening human beings to saying that we were closely aligned to bonobos but it was um it was quite interesting at looking at the polyamorous um, aspect of it from an anthropological point of view yeah mm. um yeah I, I i mean usually you see i think one of the problems is that because we've had 2000 years of christianity and i mean we i'm, I'm talking having come from a western society which is, is mostly christian in what i've you know like the culture um and so what's happened is sex has become um stigmatized and shamed and um so we look at monogamy as being moral um whereas she's not saying that at all um because if you look at different societies, they'd have different arrangements and the arrangements determine the arrangements are determined basically by the culture, which is determined by the environment and the situation of the people. So we can have relationships in all kinds of ways. And that's basically practical. Um, but uh, predominantly, it's one man, one woman, and it doesn't mean one man, one woman for life. Um, she talks about um there being a three or four year high um uh, which is like the attachment stage and after that um it's kind of like the, like the high point um and i think the 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 problem with that is because we we don't have a mechanism for dealing with relationships past that up till then um i don't think we have so um she's very positive about relationships she talks about um you know the, the agricultural thing and, and now women are increasingly getting their independence so we're now reverting back to pre in, in um, agricultural because what's happened with the industrial revolution is that you've separated uh, resources from the relationship because uh, husband and wife had to stay together because if one left the other couldn't cope 
and um, one had to leave with nothing because you couldn't separate a farm. Whereas now when you have, you go out to work, you earn your money, you have resources that can be separated. Um, so monogamy is one, monogamy is one spouse. Um, so it can be one at a time. So you're like lifelong monogamy would be, yeah. So whether it's, uh, staying together forever or serial monogamy. Um, okay. So, uh, Pete, I'm not sure. Did I answer that question or is there any more? You know, like when you said about, sorry to go back. Hi, my name's Sarah. Hi, guys. Um, you said about that a man needs to know who their child is. I think you made a really good point about the woman always knows, obviously, where, you know, her child, but the man might think that the child is someone else's. Um, but that is not just, that does not correlate just with why men need to dominate the woman. The reason why a man historically needed to dominate a woman wasn't just to do with that. That that issue was to do. You're talking about an insecurity in the man and a lack of trust in the relationship. Whereas the reason why women were dominated historically was a multi-layered. I mean, how long have you got? But it's to do with power and control. Society and historically, a woman was dominated because of power and control. And I still think to some extent that is true politically, if you look at the political background that we're living in, 80% of um, the Houses of Parliament is made up by men, whereas in New Zealand, I've lived in New Zealand, there's well over, there's about 70% of women that, that are in Parliament. And, and culturally, New Zealand is a really, like, women are really respected, you know, it's like much more equal in terms of like it's not even about men and women it's about who are you as a person not are you a man or a woman but who are you as a person you know because I think we're all unique and it's not about monogamy this or monogamy that it's like everyone has got their own individual needs in society everyone is individual and it's only society that wants to brand us all with the same colour or the same idea and we're not we're all unique individuals and we've all got our own attributes and our own needs we've all got you know we've all got our own needs haven't we mm. um absolutely um i'm interested in um if you can say briefly like the the the, the what motivates the like what is the need for power and control because man, when I yeah you yeah. tell me what 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 I've heard not saying that I don't like men but I do I don't like the inequality of power and I think a man's desire to dominate a woman historically it's because of their insecurity it's like um I think like to take it on a spiritual level I think we're all here to learn on a spiritual level and I think we all we all choose to be here and we've all bring our own insecurities, whether it be jealousy, hate, revenge, power and all the other beautiful attributes as well. But I think it's beyond just an economic like idea. I think when you meet somebody, you connect on a soul level 
and with with that comes all their crap as well all their like insecurities or and i think notoriously a man wants a woman to absorb all his insecurities energetically i think women are a lot more spiritual god sorry if this is going to be a bit on pc guys because respect to all the guys here but i think women notoriously are very spiritual and we're the receivers and we receive all of that like stuff that men can own and it's like the shadow side of a man carl young talked about the shadow and the mat and it's like the women receive all of this crap and and we're not just you know just to um just to balance out the the argument i think there's often um whether it's men women um or um different races um, so you've got Me Too and you've got uh, Black Lives Matter. And basically what you've got is you've got a culture that has um, enabled one to dominate. Um, and what you'll often find in, in the, the Me Too and in the Black Lives Matter is that there's an equal desire to... Um, not, not to dominate, but... Um, it's like you've had your time, it's our time. Um, and so you you know, like um, so when when you're talking, you know, when you say men have done that, men have done that because they had the ability. But I don't know. It's consciousness that, that, though. What I was saying I, is it's not just economic, it's like the level of consciousness within your being within your mind, within your soul, it's, it's, it's like, you know, men have got a lot to work out maybe in, in enabling themselves to express themselves in a relationship. Because but, all the, to give you a specific example, right, all the men I've gone out with in my life have never been able to say, I'm really jealous about that. They, they act out their crap or give it to you energetically, but they don't actually say, I am actually really jealous about that. They push their shit onto you. I'm trying to make it as clear as I can. Mm. But is that, but okay, so I look at that and I see that men and women have been given different roles through patriarchy. So men have been told that they have to be the leaders of the house. They have to be um, strong in control. They can't show weakness. Um, so what that means is that men aren't able to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm vulnerable. Um, and so I think we have to separate from what originally started it and the behaviour that the culture has then led us to. Some people are able to look beyond what they're given and look beyond the paradigm so say if you're say if the society says you've got to repress your feelings some people can go well I know I'm not I'm choosing to do it my way yeah yeah there's there's always going to be um those people that that can I think we're all here um to um because we've gone beyond the, the the default and we're looking yeah, to yeah. write I am our own gen- narrative. Sorry, I am generalising, but, but I suppose mm. what I was saying is that as somebody that comes, like, so if, you're, if you've if you been oppressed, like, say, 
you know, if you're a minority, you've been oppressed, of course you're going to be like a jack-in-a-box coming out of the... You're gonna, that energy, once it's repressed down, it need, it's like a pendulum, it needs to go the other way. So you're hmm. saying Black Lives Matter is their, their, is their dominant... They're not, you know, I get what you meant. Hang on, I'm just going to finish a minute. You said, and I get exactly what you meant. However, like a pendulum, for every action, there's an equal and equal reaction, equal and opposite reaction. So, of course, they're going to want, of course, we want our voice heard. Hmm. That's a natural phenomenon. It's not just a like, well, two wrongs don't make a right. Bullshit. It's like, if you've been repressed, your voice needs to be heard. And I think women are still repressed. I really believe that. Because right, if because I'm really interested in human, like I study, I'm a psychologist, right? If you study human behaviour, if you put a room full of men and women in a room, the man will want to dominate that. That most of the time, eighty percent of the time, the man will want to dominate every single time. That is true. Okay, um, just Marcus is is waiting very patiently. Um. I just wanted to um, bring it back to what you were saying earlier about um, like hormones, like testosterone, because I can remember um, watching a program a few years ago where there was um, a woman who was um, undergoing like a gender reassignment process, and so she was then going on artificial testosterone injections, and she said. The um, one thing she found is as she started to have the testosterone and she her body became more male, she actually physically found it harder to cry. So actually, there's actually a physical chemical thing going on there, rather than so much it being a choice that oh men don't show their emotions or whatever. It's yeah. actually physically we're we're kind of primed to be that way, and I think also the thing of being dominating testosterone is typically like a sort of an aggressive thing like the more testosterone somebody has the more aggressive they're likely to be so so i've heard mm. i mean i'm not an expert but so there is there is something there that's kind of like perhaps hardwired that um so i just think that's interesting um yeah i think you you, you make a good point there marcus i think that i look at it that I look at people and I think, given the same genetics, environment, culture, background, um, temperament, um, and all the things that have happened, I think we would all do the same thing. Um, so, it, yeah, so, so yeah, you, you change the, the testosterone and, and testosterone amplifies um, any trait. So there are equal number of um, boys and girls born um and yet by the time they reach 18 21 there's less men and it's because testosterone amplifies and so what that does is if they have any kind of um sickness or um flaw in the genes it amplifies it so they have that disease and the those get weeded out so you know young boys die more um, plus the testosterone, they have more accidents. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's relevant. That w I think one of the things that's really powerful from looking at Helen Fisher is showing how important biology is 
when we look so much at culture. Um, and yeah, I, I, and I think that's what you were really saying, wasn't it? Well, I can attest to the effect of testosterone because my testosterone levels went through the roof. I'm telling you, it was higher than any man's because of a medical <laughs> condition. No, seriously, it was, my doctor was, uh, she said, uh, this is unbelievable. And I knew what it was doing to me because I was, I would just snap on a dime. I was aggressive. I felt it. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it was happening. Things that I would tolerate, I became very intolerant of. And I remember I had to have an operation. And the day after, I started to feel different immediately. And when I had my, my next test, my testosterone levels had gone right back down, all the way down. And I felt different. It makes you it makes you behave differently. Um, it's also interesting how um, I mean these are all big generalizations, but I was also reading about how the differences between how men and women communicate with each other, and it says that usually when women are talking to each other, they're usually face to face, reading each other's facial expressions. Whereas what often happens with men is they'll sit side by side, so they're not facing each other because they'll be more inclined to sort of do a task together or I don't know watch something together or something there's more that more like they're sort of on a team together doing something um mm. I mean it's a generalization but there's also the the other thing is there's also um thing that if if you go to um if you go to a woman I'm trying how do I explain this if a woman comes to you with her problems, she wants sympathy. If a man comes to you with your problems, his problems, he wants solutions. So then the same is true. If you go to a man with your problems, he'll try and fix your problems. But if you go to a woman with your problems, she'll empathise with you and get connect with you on an emotional level. Again, it's broad generalisation, yeah. but it does seem to be the case. And I, I find that, say, like if my mum comes to me with um, complaining about something, straight away I want to fix it. And I can't rest until I've actually solved the problem. And like sometimes she just literally wants me to sympathise with the fact that she's having a bad day or something. And I, I, I sort of being task orientated, I just want to, I just want to get to the bottom of it. And I think, I wonder whether biologically we're just sort of wired like that to be different. That's mm. it's the more the kind of task orientated versus emotional connection kind of thing. Mm. By focusing on the task, you skip the emotional bit. It saves, you from, it saves you from connecting on the emotional level. Yeah, but I don't even think we we think of it like that. I just think we we go there because it's naturally natural to go there. The fact that we skip the emotional bit is a side effect rather than an intention. You know, it's it's just that's just the way it goes. But. Mm. I actually think when you, it's learned I think it's learned in a way, especially if you if you are in an environment where you have a father who is like that and uncles and that's the you know you're conditioned to think that that's how men respond. Um, so you're right in a sense that you you probably don't even think about it but but you have been conditioned subconsciously because that's how you see the adults deal with it, you know, as you... Yeah, there is that element of sort of partly nurture, partly nature, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's hard to separate because um, 
I mean, men used to hunt, um, and so you'd hunt side by side, and that's the reason, given that we don't, men don't like eye contact, because you'd you'd hunt, you'd be quiet for long periods of time, you'd focus on. So, um, I mean, I think Helen Fisher talks about um, back in the in the days of the hunting, the, the men would bring back the meat, um, but that would only be half the meal because they'd only bring back meat every three or four days, whereas a woman would provide most of the meal, so she had um, the same independence. It's only in some cultures, though. I don't want to be devil's advocate, but I've read about a lot of cultures where the woman is the hunter and the man is the one, the artistic one, that stays at home and does all the cooking, um, and that works really, really well. So it depends on the culture, doesn't it? Like. Um- what what I was talking about was in terms of um, evolution, in terms of um, thousands of years um, of behaviour. Um, yeah, but that is... So if, if you take it as evolution, why is it that some cultures at the same time were on are doing completely different things? They're doing the opposite. So that tells me that if you take the whole global the whole global like cultures all over the world it's not just one it's biological reaction it's like it can't just be biology because lots of cultures are different you get me it's not just biology is it no i don't think it's biology i think it's i think it's biology within a context so what i'm saying is i'll make it clearer right what i'm saying is though the women that hunt because we're talking about women like to be empathized with and men don't notoriously don't talk face to face head on and read gesticulations they go they they talk side to side and do like go hunting and i was thinking as you were saying that well actually women hunt too but so is it just a biological thing? That's quite clear. I'm making it quite clear what I'm saying, right? It's not just biology because women hunt and they can talk to each other face to face and side to side. So it's not just biology. I no, think it, a, a lot of it is power and control that a man feels like well, they don't want to face a woman head on. I, well, I, think that, I think the situation is, is with any broad category, you've got overlap. So it's like you're always going to have, you're always going to have men that are more feminine than some women, and some men that are more feminine than the average woman, and some women that are more masculine than the average men. Is is it masculine or is it is it why have we got like is it masculine or feminine like it's so it's embedded in the culture. So in this culture that I was reading about, all the women hunted. It wasn't just the odd masculine woman that hunted it was like all the women hunted and the men oh, cooked so the meal and then so what why 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 i made that why i'm talking about that is because i'm questioning is it biology that the man hunts and then you know talks to the man face doesn't talk to people face to face well it's obviously obviously women have the ability to hunt so if the culture requires them to hunt they have the ability to do that it's not saying that oh only men can hunt and women no, can, cannot hunt oh, i think men don't talk to women face to face because they because of power and control not because it goes back to evolution where they were hunting i don't agree with that whatsoever i think men don't 
talk to women eyeball to eyeball because they're scared and I don't mean all men are scared I mean I really respect men but I'm saying I think there's a kind of a, um, a really unspoken sense there is power still in society where a man doesn't see a woman as an equal human being eyeball to eyeball where does that power come from then yeah, I don't know. It comes from a sense of like inadequacy or some kind of like not feeling good enough, which is a shame because I think men are good enough. But there's a kind of emotional insecurity that I'm not going to come up to pass, so I'm going to dominate you instead. And I think that's a shame. But so yeah, I, 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 uh, let me let me just bring in Errol. Errol had his hand up. I just want to sort of ask a question, uh, just just to clarify my own understanding. Uh, if, if we are saying that men are um, trying to dominate women and that's why they don't uh, eyeball them, uh, you know, I, actually, I don't want to look at this screen because I'm talking to you. No. Uh, but but uh, um, either we are saying that they are so aggressive, in which case I suspect they would look at you in the eyeball to stare you down because they're trying to dominate you. Or we are saying they are actually feeling totally inadequate, in which case you would find them acting normally with male partners where they don't have that kind of inadequacy, perhaps. And is that what you are saying? Because no, I'll, I'll make it more clear on a on a more of an emotional level. I get you. Like if someone's going to be aggressive, they would really look at you fiercely and eyeball you. I'm on about spiritually looking at you right in the eye and seeing you as a person, seeing you beyond the flesh, like seeing your soul. It might sound a bit like hippy dippy, but I'm on about seeing somebody soul to soul regardless of gender, race, or whatever. It's like, that takes a lot of balls to see someone in the soul, to look at someone in the eye and say, I see you, I accept you, and I love you. It, that takes okay. a lot of balls. That takes a lot of balls. Okay, so if you are saying that he sees a woman as a person and without the prejudices that are attached, perhaps, so he doesn't kind of say, well, you're a woman, therefore your place is in the kitchen or something stupid like that. Um, mm. He's actually looking at the, as a person. And that's one thing. Um, but whether that is, we could generalize to say that is from a kind of inadequacy, I don't know if that's what you're saying. Well, I'm not saying it's maybe on, on, a, on, a, maybe on a cultural level it could be, like a cultural inadequacy that men feel like they need to dominate to prove that they're men when we're all human beings trying to do the best we can we all struggle we all feel pain and we all go through ups and downs and it's like I wish men could meet me on that level and say I I, I, I see you you know like okay so if I'm in a room and there's like say five men and just me I, I'm invisible most of the time they won't even though I might be the most educated person in the room I might not be and I don't care about education but what I'm saying is is that they most of the time I just get stereotyped as the woman that doesn't know what she's talking about whereas actually I could be the most knowledgeable knowledgeable person in the room but I'm the most invisible and it's ironic that I'm doing a lot of talking tonight because I don't normally talk this much but 
I do feel invisible a lot of the time in society. I feel invisible. Okay, I I I think I think that there's always there's always um, it's the nature nurture debate which is constant and neither of them are separate. So biology always has to happen within a context. And so the context will determine how the biology did, shows up. Um, and it's like the talk of whether technology changes relationships. And, and Helen Fish is quite clear that you can't change biology because you've got 200,000, it's going to take 200,000 years to evolve. So the technology can change the rituals and change the format, but it doesn't change the actual um, core behaviour. So, so how come New Zealand is so different then? Well, how come New Zealand, I, I travelled the world, I've gone to many cultures, and there's many cultures that are very different than how we see things over here. Okay, so, so well, well, just just to, just to um, put some context to your question. So if men have dominated from inadequacy, um, which for me, you have to look at, how did something start? So if men have dominated from inadequacy, how did they manage to dominate? Because if they're feeling inadequate or they are inadequate, what would give them the ability to control women? Because it's a well-known fact, if you don't feel good enough, you have to prove yourself even more. That's a, I mean, in psychology, that's a known fact, isn't it? Where you have to overachieve or over... You have to go. You have to push yourself more because you don't feel good enough. Whereas somebody's got a real sense of self and is really grounded and confident, that to me is a real like someone who I can trust. That's someone who an, an alpha male is not somebody who is saying, "Look, I'm going to dominate you." An alpha male is somebody that can. It's just it's they're just yeah, well, present in themselves. Well, actually, alpha males have been found to be the ones who are most cooperative and not the not the strongest. But I don't want to. to this That's what whole, I'm saying. Yeah, that's I don't exactly want, what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't want tonight to be a talk about um, social control because that's just one small aspect. So, um, Marcus and and Aurel, um, if you want to, I know you had your hands up. If you want to close um, close out, and then we we're, we're going to go to the breakout rooms. Okay. Uh, all I want to say was that uh, the the basic instinct is fight or flight. So I think um, I personally don't subscribe to the view that uh, just because the guys want to dominate, therefore they are going to fight. I mean, there might be guys who cannot dominate and therefore they flight. So why is it to say that most guys would therefore try to dominate the women because they're inadequate? If they felt inadequate, they might also cower away and you know, run off and be on their own for argument's sake because they feel so inadequate. So I think it might be wrong yeah, to you... say they're only like this because they're inadequate. I mean, no, it is... a, yeah, yeah, but a lot of domestic abuse is happening in lockdown. If you look yeah, at the... I, I think you are right, we, we... sorry, for cutting up, and I know Drop wants to finish, so I'll just be very, very quick. I, I agree with a lot of the things you're saying. It's a male dominated society, I accept that. But I don't think I, it is from males uh, necessarily inadequacy. Personally, I don't think it is. Maybe I just said it because I'm a guy. I think there are other historical issues that Rob tried to hit on, that, you know, Maine were, were the hunter-gatherers and all the rest of it, they were the more physically dominant species. And perhaps it's come from that, that they were always the more stronger, therefore they could, you know, use force to get what they want, and therefore they kind of stayed that way and translated into today's society. I don't know. But 
I don't know that you could sign the CTR and say that it's due to inadequacy. That's that's my case. Okay, uh, Marcus, did you want to have a um, quick point before? Yeah, I just very quickly say uh, one thing I would say is, um, Sarah, I do I do kind of uh, um, take your point about understand what you're saying about um, there are sometimes people that can be aggressive towards other people due to inadequacy. Um, however, I don't I don't think that's limited just to men because I have met several women, very bolshy women, who were quite aggressive towards other people who I think it turned out would like that as like a defense mechanism because they were inadequate in themselves. So I understand your point, but I think it's not limited just to men. At all. Okay. Um, sorry, okay. Sarah, so sort of, there, there, sorry, Rob, just to cut you, just there, there is a readjustment round, round sort of men uh, now to sort of see where they fit into society amongst the role of women. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're you know, that they're, um, they're, they're challenge that they're still facing now, but, um that there there is a question that you're you are raising and there's there's some good points as well so i just wanted to yeah just um uh acknowledge that i i, I just want to um clear up because because often we get passionate about a point of view and often we we feel that we need to um pursue it nothing gets decided here this what we talk about here is our narratives um, and there is none of us can know what really caused patriarchy, what really caused any behaviour. Um, we're just coming up with our own narrative. So we're gonna, we're not going to agree, um, but we don't have to have the same point, same point of view. We just are here to share different points of views, um, and then we take away what um, whichever we agree with. Um, okay, uh, Sandra. I think we could agree, however, that we, uh, as a species, we are evolving. We will continue to evolve. Um, our roles will require adjustments on both sides as we change or as we modify our behavior. And with the emerging new technologies, which are cha also changing uh, not only our roles, but the pace of um, how we how we how we interact, um, that we should not be stuck on how we evolved uh, in, in certain aspects and whether or not they are right or wrong, and and hold on to those those kind of binary thoughts. I think that is something that's holding us back and I think we need to be careful. Yes, we need to be aware of what happened in the past, but I think several new factors are coming into place, into place, sorry. And as a result of that, we have to be willing to open ourselves up to make the adjustments. This notion that men are um, insecure, I, 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 I am very uncomfortable with that because then it, uh, then it lends me to ask the question, so what is it about the female then that is the, the comparative um, notion that you would ascribe to us? Because men have an issue, what is it about women? Because we are not passive in this, in this discussion, we are, we are not passive. So what is our role in that interplay? I, yeah, I, I think... Um... <sighs> When you look at it in a big picture and when you look at like through life, it's not even just genders, 
it's species it's we're life we're life presenting um in the way that we've evolved and the way in the, the way that the environment shapes the way that we evolve okay so we're going to go into breakout rooms um and the discussion is about monogamy promiscuity so helen fisher says that we are I don't know that she does she say yeah probably promiscuous in in the sense that, that we're we're not just monogamous, um, but um, we're um, built with these three drives: the sex drive um, to procreate to, um, or just for for pleasure, um, the romantic drive to focus on the one and and obsess about that one, and the deep attachment. Um, okay, so we so you'll get a link. We'll go for about ten minutes. Welcome back. So, um, does anyone have any interesting points in terms of promiscuity, monogamy, um, getting their needs met from different people? I, I was looking in the chat. Um, and I saw Marcus's point or question um, about is it realistic to um, expect one person to meet all our needs? And that's something that um, Helen Fisher talked about. There was much less um, pain after divorce in, in other cultures because they had the support of the community. Um, so does anyone want to talk about what what he further discussions they had in terms of monogamy or um, promiscuity and, and Marcus. Um, so yeah, we were talking about, um, yeah, how people are compatible in terms of whether or not the relationship is well balanced. So I was giving the example of like, if like, I have the past, uh, past issues with trying to rescue people who needed my help you know and it's like it's an imbalanced relationship where one person is doing a lot of work to um try and fix another person and sort out their problems and and so we were talking about how a more successful relationship would probably be one where the sort of the roles they have in the relationship are sort of balanced out to being more equal so um that's kind of what we we were talking about um, and also what we were talking about is my question about whether or not it's realistic to have all our needs met by one person and so then we were talking about how um, modern society has kind of made that unrealistic whereas in the past or even in some other cultures there would be a situation where a lot of your needs are met outside of the relationship, but you're, you're still within a monogamous relationship, but, you know, your other needs are met with other people in the village, you know, other social needs and that. I think I've kind of summarised that as I understand it, but that's the kind of topics we were talking about. Yeah, it's, it's we've come, we're, we've been built and evolved in, in groups, um, of like smaller than 150 and um and so um we suddenly like since the industrial revolution come to um by rebecca um come to 
come to a place where we sit on the tube um, and we just don't talk to anyone because we're overwhelmed by how many people there are. Um, and so, yeah, that, that makes it, um, changes the nature of our, the way that we, um, the way that we um, interact. Um, any other rooms have any interesting discussion? We were saying that we uh, thought that love was not the uh, Hollywood romance, which is fake and superficial. We were saying that we thought love is, real love is based on action and commitment and respect for each other. Mm. Yeah, very true. I, I, I think one of the, the great crimes of, um, you know, currently is uh, we we're set up by Disney and fairy tales to, to believe in something that isn't realistic. Yeah. And we said, we think that's a huge problem because obviously people fall in love and then they mm. inevitably fall out of love. But also I was saying on a deeper level, when somebody feels that they're in love with somebody, what they're really experiencing is self love because when you love someone, what you love about that person is that you can be yourself so when you're saying I love you, what you're really saying is I love myself because when I'm with you, I can be myself or you bring out the best of myself. So what I actually am loving when I am with you is the experience of being myself. Hmm. So can you actually separate between love and self-love? Because it, is it not just, for me, isn't it just a um, uh, feeling um, what we we ascribe to where it comes from determines what we ascribe it as. I believe love comes from a universal love through through the channel, through the spiritual channel. It's going to sound a bit off the wall, but I'm just going to be completely myself. I believe it's universal love that comes through the channel and then out into the world to other people. Love is within us and we choose consciously to give that to other people. Yeah, yeah, it's just, just, I think it's just love and how it flows. Yeah, which, um, is, which Hollywood is saying, if you go out there and grab love, look good, dole up, wear the makeup, grab love, then you can grab it and it doesn't come from the outside in, it has to come from the inside and hmm. flow outwards. We get it, Hollywood has got it the completely wrong way round. Hmm, definitely. Um, Sasha's put some really interesting points. I don't know if you wanted to talk on that. Sasha or um just what I got from the um from watching the videos that you sent found some of it like really interesting definitely helpful um I found it really good to be Sasha categorized everyone into four groups I don't know how accurate that is and obviously she collected a lot of data but you know they're obviously going to overlap in places as well um but yeah I thought that was quite interesting um and I could definitely identify with one group more than the other three um the good and the bad um and i don't know yeah and this you know where she gave the list of words of you know typical words that you would find say in a dating profile if they were one group i found that to be okay. very true um and that was quite interesting um 
so, so the yeah, four. I just generally found it quite interesting and useful information. It was quite helpful. Mm. The four um, personality types, I, I believe, they're drawn from, or they, they correlate very well with Myers Briggs. So Myers Briggs is sixteen personality types, but it's actually um, four actual types. You might like. Um, there's a book, uh, please know my type, or something like that, and it basically talks about the four main types. Yeah, I've seen um, the Myers Briggs things. I was wondering how it correlated with that because it's just—is she condensed them into four, or is that already something existing? There, there is already. Um, so there's sixteen personalities, but they they yeah, yeah. come under four. There's rationals, artisans. Um, artisans are what she calls explorers. Guardians are what she calls builders. Uh, rationals and. Um, can't remember the other one but i i i think they're based on on the myers-briggs but there's also been uh is it uh socrates talked about the four or Hipp hippocrates had the four humans and um so this it's quite uh there's a, a long lineage of those types um okay uh does anyone else um, have anything else or, or anything that they wanted to um, talk about? So I think we've covered the monogamy and why people stray. Well, we were talking about the um, act of, of, of chasing sex in a sense, um, promiscuity as um, being not necessarily about the sex, but the chase uh, for the next high. In other words, that addiction to that experience and um, searching for that experience again, which of course is embodied many times in um, being with the unknown. So it's venturing into unknown territory with a new partner, with a new person. And um, so we keep looking for that high again, because after a while familiarity we get, you know, yeah, it becomes yeah. routine. So then we go off and find a new and exciting one and uh, move on, which says to me that sex is not necessarily the main issue. It's the search, it's you're searching for something else. And sex pro provides that, like a drug. <laughs> Yeah, and, and actually, when you look at, um, she talks about um, the sex drive and the romantic drive as being addictive um, and also having the three worst elements, which is habituation. So you um, you need more and more um, withdrawal and relapse. Um, and yeah, so, so like the romantic drive of, of feeling obsessed about someone and anxious when they're not responding um yeah i think it's dopamine is romantic and uh is it serotonin i think is or yeah or, or yeah whichever one um yes yeah, so yeah that's that's interesting but when you look at them um if you're going to rank them I don't know if you would look at it the same way, but I would say that sex is uh, the f like the first. It's the easiest to come by and the um, probably the one that you're going to lose interest, not lose interest in sex, but lose interest in a partner sexually first. And then the romantic 
um, and then the attachment is the one the attachment is the one that's really difficult to um to find um because it's quite easy to find someone that you can have sex with it's quite easy to find someone that you can feel romantic about but to feel deep attachment is probably takes more of an investment um and is slower to wear off i would say i don't know what you feel sorry doesn't deep attachment come a lot longer in the relationship didn't Gottman say something about the real deep attachment doesn't come till like years into the marriage um I, Jed, Jed, I don't know Jed Diamond said most relationships are better later on it's um yeah I, I think attachment is developed over time isn't it um you can you can have a friend um you've just met but the friend that you know from you know from school is going to be um, a closer attachment um i think that's just a function of time and experience experience shared experiences is it if it's sometimes the case though that you can know someone for a long time but actually not have a deep attachment because uh, there just hasn't been that level of intimacy honesty openness openness and connection so perhaps actually somebody who who you might have known for less time might have had a stronger connection yeah, that, that, that brings up a really good point is that um, when you relate that to dating, um, people who play a game, who use strategies, don't form the attachment. They can get the interest, they can get the romantic interest by playing a character, but real connection comes from self-disclosure. So it comes from disclosure, self-disclosure, um, and that happens from really sharing who you are. But you do find that there are some people who play the rituals. They go through the whole process of, of courtship and being physically attracted and be very generous and all of those things. But the, at the core of it, they are emotionally unavailable. And so you are seduced into thinking that they are meeting all of, ticking all the boxes that you want in, a, in an ideal partner. But that emotional closeness and openness <coughs> that would bring about deep attachment, they are not available. Yeah. Um, Marcus. Um, so, yeah, like, um, I'm currently single, but like last year before the pandemic hit, I was doing quite a lot of online dating. At the time, I was watching quite a lot of videos with advice on how to be good at dating. And after a while, I got sick of it because it was full of all these sort of tips and tricks, like to, like you say, to game the system. And after a while, I thought, um, why don't I just try being myself? You know, I thought there's certain things which are just common sense, like, oh, before you go on a date, maybe, you know, have a shower, dress, dress nicely and, you know, try and be interested in what the other person says. But beyond sort of common sense things like that, you don't really want to be trying to be somebody you're not because it, that facade is going to fall away pretty soon anyway. And so I, I quickly tired of all that. Um, but another quick thing that I wanted to touch on was kind of like the opposite end of all this. Like we've been talking about like what makes people stay together. Um, oh, what, sorry, what makes people stray? But there's the other end of it, like why people stay together when it's clearly not working. Like you do get people who stay long term in really dysfunctional relationships, and I think it comes down often to like a fear of being alone. 
which I think is often the case of somebody who's been single for a long time and then they find somebody who wants to be with them, they kind of cling on to them because it's like, oh, finally, I found somebody who seems to like me. And it's like, and then they come up, they realise there's all these things about being with that person that aren't ideal. And it's like, well, I can't possibly, you know, split up with them because then I'll be on my own. It's like, it's just interesting that how fear can drive a situation like that. De- yeah, definitely. I've definitely seen um, people who are really unhappy in their marriage, um, and yet they will stay because they've heard so many horror stories of dating, and they're so scared to date. Um, and even, you know, I, I had a, a meeting, like it was a physical meeting, like this, and it it was difficult relationships, and it turned out to be all women um, in uh, domestic like suffering domestic abuse um and they were like oh, but it's so hard being on your own it's either that or be on your own and people would stay in abusive relationship um just because of the fear that there isn't anyone else and yet we live in a time when there is so much more access to single people there's never been as much access like no one should ever be alone that doesn't want to be because all all that's missing is the knowledge the skills and the confidence um and so it's just the process of acquiring those um and there's every age group there's more single people than there's ever been so there's no and there's more mechanisms to reach the people it's just that we haven't developed the skills to do that can i say rob i really like the point you made about uh connection and attachment coming from self-disclosure i thought that really resonates with what i was saying about when when you love someone what you love about them is that you can be yourself because ultimately when you disclose your true self it's the piece of knowing that this person accepts you for who you are and finally simply being grounded within yourself and being able to be yourself so I think again that that self-disclosure is is fundamental to self-acceptance which is self-love yeah definitely mm-hmm. um and was, what was I going to I was going to come back to Marcus's point is um So yes, um, in, in and, and one example of that is I think um, Neil Strauss. I don't know if you've ever come across in your uh, videos or your search, uh, Marcus Neil Strauss. I think that's really telling that he was like this nerdy journalist, um, and he found these pickup artists. He learned all the skills. Um, he was able to have whatever woman he wanted, and he went through um, as much debauchery as he could um, and addiction. Um, until then he found it was ultimately empty um, and his follow-up book was um, like the journey out of that um, yeah I think ultimately and I think what confuses it for a lot of people is that we want lots of things we do want um, we do want the stable relationship we want the hot guy we want the hot girl we want the um, the fun we want the stability um, and sometimes we're confused in what we're going for um but i think ultimately what we all want um maybe a a show of hands or um 
like ultimately would you say it's the deep attachment sorry what was the question um so when we're looking at um the the three drivers for a relationship so the sex drive the romantic drive and the deep attachment now i think the, the sex you can get met without being in a relationship the romantic is only going to last for a, for a while or the deep attachment so would you would you prefer romantic that obsessive thinking or would you prefer someone that you had that deep companion that maybe you didn't have that obsession thinking about them, but you had a deep companion that... Um... I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have any of them right now. I wouldn't, I'd wouldn't. i rather have a cup of tea and a, and a cream cake and put my feet up and watch the telly. Okay. Um, and the, the deep attachment, but doesn't she say that all three of them need, like, work, work, towards that deep attachment like you can't really have one without the other because if you didn't have the sex drive it wouldn't drive you towards having a romantic relationship yeah um yeah. so so she says they work independently but yes um the, the the problem that she says with casual sex is that we know that sex releases oxytocin um you feel bonded and particularly um, i've read in research that women are more bonded women are bonded for longer like the oxytocin has more of an effect um and so then you feel which leads to the romantic feelings which leads to the deep attachment um sorry amazing was about to jump in i think no no carry oh. carry on yeah i just okay. thought sort of by, by the time you've reached deep attachment you've done a full circle so everything else becomes attainable uh, once you've reached deep attachment um yeah. but you could have those... deep attachment and then lose the romance i've if you, if you like it can also it can almost go to friendship you know when a relationship is really loving and beautiful but you might lose the sex even you know uh, well, what, what, what did you say romance is 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 in a nutshell like what are you how are you defining romance romance is uh, the obsessive thinking about one person like craving wanting their attention wondering what they're thinking what they're doing like um and is that based on the on the on the chemicals in your brain making you go crazy? Then she, yeah, she says that is dopamine. Uh, is it do, yeah, dopamine? Um, yeah, it's, um, I think it's a cocktail of chemicals. Yeah, dopamine. But what what makes a person have those chemicals for that one particular person? That was um, what she was trying to answer, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's, I mean, what she says is romantic is is like. The, the sex is like the sex driver gets you out looking at people. The romantic makes you upset. Focus it onto one person. Why would you? Why would you be obsessed with that one particular person? I've got, how does that? How does that come was, about? She said it was to do with like similarities in like um, social. She she did. I can't remember them, Rob. Can you? She she listed lots, a lot yeah. of There's like, a lot similarities of in, in in looks in. Um, I can't remember them all. Yes, yeah, so, so similarity, similarity in looks, similarity in intelligence, similarity in socioeconomic class, um, similarity in, um, in intelligence, in um, life goals, values. Um, so, so that that's not necessarily. Um, she couldn't really answer it because you could have someone with all of those things. 
um, but they wouldn't necessarily you put someone in a room with all those things and they wouldn't feel attracted to all of that. But yeah, it can be I a mean, trauma bond. It can be a trauma bond. It's like the subconscious and the unconscious mind is powerful. They yeah. say if you put like a hundred people in a room, the people that gravitate towards you are similar on a subconscious level. So any trauma that you might have had as a child, you can be you can gravitate on a trauma level. It's called a trauma bond, and that romantic obsession is usually based on a trauma bond, and you, it's not something which is always conscious. So this is why working through one's own stuff is really important because if it remains at the unconscious level, there's always that possibility of reenacting that over and over again, perpetuating that. Well, yeah, but that's that's a, that's a narrative from a particular school of thought. Um, Not necessarily. So... It's biologically proven that it is like they've done, there's loads of psychological experiments done where somebody's trauma has literally give it like it's, it shapes the brain like on a neuroscience level it shapes your brain okay so you're saying that's one other reason why two people might yeah, bond absolutely absolutely trauma bonding i recommend people reading about it it's fascinating um i i i don't i think that's one of the mysteries that we don't know and there are lots of schools of thoughts. And if you, if you look into... Um, but we do know because there's literature written about it with evidence. It's not... Well, well there's something... some evidence, but it's not conclusive. There's if you, loads if... and loads of evidence based on trauma and neuroscience and how it shapes the brain and affects your choices. OK, lots but of... like, like I said, Sarah, we're not here to convince anyone. We're, not, we're here with different perspectives um, and... So why are you trying to convince me? I'm just saying what I feel is right for me. So I don't need you to convince me either way either, that it goes both ways, doesn't it? But so I'm, what, not, I'm not convincing. I'm just making what are the clear reasons, that What are the reasons why people stay... The original question was, why do people stay in relationships and become attached um, romantically? And I said it's because of... It could be one of the reasons is trauma bonding. OK, That's so you, but you, you've, had your, you've had your say... But we're, um, this is for balance. So that could lead people to believe that there's the only conclusive perspective. And I want to that, make clear. I, did, I didn't say that though, did I? Just... Okay, but I, I don't oh. want this to carry on with a certain perspective that you feel is important because this is a, this is a group for everyone. Yeah, I know, but. Okay. I'd like to just ask, well, not ask, but just for, to add my two cents and change the topic slightly. Um, the issue of deep attachment. And I'm using um, a family member um, as, a, as an example to, to pose my question. And it's um, at this stage of deep attachment where one part one partner said of the other he's my best friend and at his funeral said i don't know how i am going to live on without my best friend that was the level of the attachment but years before they had reached at that point 
she had lost all interest in sex. And he, she knew that he was having these affairs outside. But at the same time, they could not, they had got to a point where they said each other was the other's best friend. How do you reconcile that? Because, and she knew what he was doing. She knew. And she was fine with it because she was just not interested in sex anymore. And I tell you that he was 80 odd. He was 80 <laughs> when he died. <laughs> so it's not a young man. Okay. Um, and she, 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 she just was fine. Seemed on the outside, on, on the outside that she was fine with it. Now, my question is, could she really have been that okay with it? Yes, I think she could. You I think, think she could. could. Yeah, okay. I think I think if she's been with him that long and she doesn't want to give it to him, I think lots of relationships go through a phase of getting to a point where, um, you, especially if you know one of you is going to die, that you say, I can't give you all the things you need. Why don't we sort you out with somebody else so that when I die, you've got somebody there with you? Oh, but they didn't reach to that point. I mean, no, I know, but I'm just talking from my 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 experience of of, of people dying that they yeah. do actually let they, because they love their partner and they don't want to leave them. They will let them find the needs that they they can't meet anymore with somebody else, and they love them. They love them enough to want them to have that part that they can't give them anymore. But it sounds like she was all right. It's not a romantic thing, is it? No. <laughs> Yes, yeah, sure. She was all right, I suppose. It might be a relief knowing that you know. It might be a relief if you don't, if you're not interested anymore. Maybe. Um, <laughs> um, Marcus and then Celestina. Um, just a very quick thing. It a similar issue, a similar thing was I remember watching a video a while back. There was a gay man and a lesbian woman who got together in a very kind of very caring relationship where there was no sex involved at all, but they lived together and they really supported each other emotionally um, and had very similar hobbies and very similar interests in art and creativity and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they were of a certain age, I think, where uh, perhaps sex wasn't quite as important to them as it might have been when they were younger. Um, so for some reason, that particular arrangement somehow worked for them where they had that so they they were fulfilling that one aspect of it, that deep bond, without without the sex, um, and perhaps even without the romance. I don't know, but um, it's just interesting to hear about that. But aren't they just friends? Well, yeah, I suppose that what you've got then is a very very deep, kind of committed friendship. Yeah, I think um, sort of like like um, Ruth was saying and like Marcus was saying. I think that if two people have like emotionally agreed upon it and verbally agreed upon it for an emotional level, I think that two people could allow these things to happen or to be happy with that. But if it's kind of done in a, if it's not discussed, if it's not open, if it's sort of sorted and secret, I'm not sure that if, you know, there is a possibility that people have numbed out to it and de decided that, you know, Oh no, everything, you know, I'm happy with this. So I don't know, I guess it depends on the, the context of the situation. 
mm. and the individuals. Um, Celestina, thank you for waiting patiently. Oh, I just was going to say, I think Marcus is um, sort of whatever he said has answered because I, I was wondering whether people could be, when you say a deep commitment or a deep attachment, or I can't really remember the exact words you used to describe it, is it more of an emotional connection to someone? Not necessarily just friendship, but just is not so more physical, but a lot more emotionally con connected to that person and I think listening to Marcus it, it sort of makes sense. So uh, were there any other issues that um, anyone picked up on? Yeah, I I thought that um, when when the sex is good in a relationship, it can fire off all the dopamine and serotonin levels. And like you said, I know you touched on that, Rob, about how women are more likely to kind of connect with sex, and um, and then it's really hard to get out of a relationship because you think that you really love this person, you don't. It's just chemicals. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that was what, and and maybe that might be different for men. That men might connect later down the line with the deep attachment later, but women connect maybe earlier, and that that can make it quite difficult to kind of see to be on a level with each other because yeah, yeah, it can be quite tricky. Yeah, I, men do have the same oxytocin. It's just it hangs about in the women's system for uh longer i think one is like 27 hours and maybe 16 hours or something like that um so there is more of a vulnerability um for um, women to attach um by all um yeah but um there's an equal uh romantic like the equal romantic drive so so basically um, from looking at the cultures and things, that um, what um, she found was that um, if you took away all the stigma um, and secrecy or anything like that, women and men are equally um, take sexual opportunities. Equally, men and women will romantically bond to someone um so there's just seems to be this like that cultural values and and moral judgments mean that women will always underestimate their sexual partners men will always overestimate um so um but underneath it all we all have the interest the desire to connect um, what, what was that point about men overestimating and women under so if there's any research on sexual partners, they know that men will always say they've had more. Women will always say they've had less. Um, and when, um, so I can't remember exactly the research, but there was some interesting research that showed how, um, like it, it sort of stripped out the lies um, and, Essentially, it's just kind of the same, but when the culture 
shame someone for being sexual, um, there's more secrecy and lies. I was just thinking about the whole uh, romance thing. Maybe it's just a process of pushing certain buttons, whether you want to call it uh, emotional or chemical or psychological. Maybe it's just a process of pushing those buttons and then when you push the right buttons at the right place and the right time with the right person, then you get what you call romance and there's a, the perception of being in love. Yeah, exactly. And um, when Sarah was talking about trauma bonds, so trauma bonds commonly happen in narcissistic relationships or toxic relationships. Um, and what happens typically is that someone falls in love with someone who pretends to be the prince or the princess of their dream. Um, they have that deep romantic obsession. And then they use that as manipulation and control. Um, and what keeps the, someone in the relationship is the addictiveness of trying to retain that high and regain, recapture that high. Um, and so we become trapped um, by our chemistry. And so people can play roles. And so that's why you can date and you can use the pick up tricks and um, things to to create connection, but you, it won't then develop to deep connection. Um, Would you say that that's false connection though? Because if, if you've yeah. got a pickup artist pushing those buttons, deliberately manipulating, and as it were, creating connection, because it, it's not a genuine connection, could you call that a false connection? Or could you say it feels real to the person that's having their bus buttons pushed at that moment in time, because they don't know they're being manipulated. Hmm. In, that, in other words, it, it comes back to what I was just saying. It's just a process of, a series of, of buttons so maybe neither's real in the end it just it all feels the same it's like what's the difference between being on a real roller coaster and a virtual reality well if you can't tell the difference then there is no difference yeah yeah definitely mm. exactly um I think I do know the difference though because I, I think that was really brilliant what you posed there Betty absolutely spot on um but yeah, I think there for me, there's a difference with the high and the low. With with the narcissistic attachment, there's a high and then there's a low, like a roller coaster. But with a a real connection, there's like a a plateau. You're like steady, it's grounded, you can breathe, like it's just nice. There's no high and low. Yeah. Um, Sasha's been waiting patiently. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I was going to say as well. On the internal level, how to distinguish between the, the healthy and non-healthy relationship. I I think when you look at the romantic drive, it's something that gets us into the relationship. Um, and I think you, so. You've got like it's kind of like a I don't know, like a shoot where you've got the sex drive the romantic to the deep connection um so well, i guess i guess what what i was going to say is that if you can really see that it's going on a high and then going on a low and then you're looking for this attachment again and then it's dropping again i think that's a sign that it isn't healthy and that it is an unstable attachment yeah yeah because you're tolerating the lows for the high and I think that the way to distinguish between the two is, is like Sarah said as well, is that 
it, it feels more grounded and there's more of a slow pace to it. It doesn't feel so... So if you feel, because I think what a lot of happens with a lot of people that have been in abusive relationships, they then get confused about attachment because they're only used to this sort of roller coaster. And when they're on the down, it's like, oh, why, why me? It must be something to do with me. What have I done? How do I get it back up again? And they get very confused in this low. Um, so I think for people that might be at risk of, of getting confused, it's like if you're noticing it bouncing a lot like that, that's actually a sign that it's not you and that it's it's a problem in the actual attachment and the relationship and stuff. But there are some people who are very practiced in the art of romance and they confuse people. Yeah, and that's how to look out for it is when you, if you notice you're really, really confused and really low and don't understand what's going on and you can't make sense of it through you know you can't see the sun through the trees that's the sign that it's not healthy but sandra do you mean those people who are uh, practiced in the art of romance are deliberately manipulating people in other words they know which buttons to press to elicit a response sometimes they are sometimes they are practiced in the sense that that is the uh, the, the routine that they have have developed over time and there isn't necessarily any underhandedness accompanying that process but then what happens after it's like you've come to a dead end and you've done what the role playing that you know you have put it all out and you have done that but then that part where you're getting into deep attachment and it's becoming more routine um that is an unknown because they probably have not taken it beyond the the practice of of, of the routine attachment because a lot of relationships seem to break up when that starts to ebb um, it's almost as though i'm now bored with you so i need to go and start a new romantic um you know it's like the chase almost um another case of i suppose getting high but the person on the other side has mistaken all of the cues that they they see from this partner as being genuine and therein lies lies the difficulty because one person will feel cheated out of having expended so much energy um and putting so much effort into because of the cues that they're getting from this other person Mm, yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, what fascinates me is the idea is, is love even real? Because when I think of it as a process of just pushing certain buttons and you get the chemistry and you get the psychology, you get the emotion, you get the whatever, and then all of a sudden you're in love. I just wonder, is love then in that sense even real? Because technically speaking, you could, you, you could fulfill that with a robot. Exactly. And then what is love to to you? What does love mean to me? I think that is also something that um, we have to, we have to come to grips with, mm. because you know your perception of love may be different from mine. There are some people who think that it's all consuming, and it is complete um, involvement of two partners, and it's difficult to maintain something like that. I would think, and is that really love or is that obsession? Okay, can I ask everybody, do you think you could fall in love with a robot 
or a robot could love you is it is it possible yeah i no. definitely could i could definitely fall in with love with a robot it'd be a lot easier than a man and the, the tea would be on the table exactly <laughs> the right time as well sorted mate sorted. <laughs> i'm saving up for one <laughs> I think it depends how... That was how... a joke, that was a joke, by the way. No one laughed, but I am quite a comedian. Um, I don't think people know when I'm joking. That was a joke. I don't want a robot, no. I thought there was too much honesty in that joke. <laughs> I think it depends how realistic the robot is. If it was, like, if it was totally human-like, then, I don't know, maybe. Hey, but... Which bit seen... do you need to be realistic? <laughs> Have you seen the show Humans? Yeah, I, I watched all yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, I really liked it. Is it um, good? Yeah, yes. I, like, I good. like it. What's, what's good about it? Have you seen any of it, Ruth? No, I haven't. I've saw the trailer and just thought it looked it would creep me out. But one of what someone I respect said they'd watched all of it and thought it was amazing. So I thought, well, maybe I should give it a go. But yeah, well, that was a good show. It's a good. It's a good it's good. Do people form relationships with um, people that aren't real? Well, they, they don't know that they're not real. Okay. That is disturbing, isn't it? Hmm. Um, it, it, it really relates to what I'm saying. Is how do you know what real love is? If, if your buttons are being pushed, it's not, it's not even a question of how do you know that what you're in love with is real, but the love that you are experiencing, how can you define it as real? Because all that's happening is, is a cocktail of chemicals or emotions yeah. and all of those can, yeah. that, could be, that could be projected onto anyone or anything. And, oh, sorry. And, and really everything... So the central message, I think, of Helen Fisher's work is that we are biological we're um, predominantly driven like 40, 60 something percent of biologically, but we operate in a context and we make the narrative about that context. So love is mostly like we feel, we operate from what we feel and then we make the narrative based on what we feel. And a lot of the problems that we have are we confuse our narrative with the truth. And so um, in terms of like, does a relationship last? Anything that's not based on the truth will sooner or later be found out and, and crumble. Um, anything that's based on the, on the truth lasts. Um, and so for me, the, the issue of relationships is really about checking is it narrative or is it truth? But what do you mean um, when you say truth? So truth is um, not my truth, not your truth, um, but truth as in um, like gravity. So we could we had explanations for stuff, but gravity is a law. It's the truth. It happens. Um, now, if you have a real solid bond, that's true. Then you're going to respect and treat each other well. If you have a relationship that's built on, like you talked about, thinking that you're in love or, or even feeling in love, but feeling in love with something that isn't wholly true, then that's not on sound foundations. But there is a possibility of several truths, several realities, given 
the conditions. So we go back to context once again, yeah. how it is framed, and that will define what that particular truth or reality is. And we have and to you know, and that. you know yeah. you know that person's truth based only on their actions because what their intentions are will never be proven by their words, but only by their actions. Yeah. yeah. And you know the truth because they tell you something and you believe it, and then what they say is turns out to be true. That's like well, human if, beings. It's not their words, though. What, what I'm saying is it's not their words, it's their actions. So if you want to know what someone's yeah. truth is, what they say, that's how you build trust. I mean, I mean, I think I think there's a, there is an element of luck in this. And I think in love, as we, as we say it, there, there's an element of luck, I believe. So I, I don't know. It could even be something stupid that, I don't know, someone's in a casino and they bet on 69 and they win a grand and you walk in and you've got a T-shirt that says 69 on it or something. You know, there's there's an element of luck, I think, sometimes in relationships. And that, But there's also an element of faith. I think you have to... Because I'm a great believer in power of suggestion. So if, if you... And, and it's funny, like Rob talking about truth and narrative, you know, if you think that something's going to fail and you'll probably self-sabotage it at, at, at some sort of subconscious level that you're not even sure. I think you have got to have a bit of yeah. faith and hope as well. You know, you need to, you need to something to get you through as well, because there will be difficult times and you need to, you need, you know, you need to kind of believe in it, I think. But the what? truth of a person comes from, um, as you say, what they say, but that is the hypothesis, hypothesis that you are going to test the other person, as Betty's um, saying, the truth that they say they are speaking to you, you are going to test it by their actions. You use the various signals that they um, that you that you observe, and you test it against that statement, and that's all you can do. Love is a thoughtful, committed decision rather than a feeling by which we are overwhelmed. It's not a feeling, it's an action. It's an extension of oneself for another person. Yeah, it's an emotion, isn't it? And, it? and the same as any other emotion, it's sometimes it can be difficult to control. You know, I mean, I mean, you shouldn't laugh if someone you don't like falls over and hurts themselves, do you? But, but you know, you might suddenly let out a little giggle. <laughs> and you can't help doing that. You I was just thinking, oh, it must be after nine. Pete's, Pete's woken up. <laughs> I couldn't get any word in edgeways before. <laughs> I, I I thought he I thought he was a robot and his battery only woke up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I think I'm charging that. I, I can set my car on you. I'd like um, two cups of tea, please, and a foot rub. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of order. I think truth. I mean, truth is a very. I mean, I'm gonna have to agree with Sandra on the truth factor, though. Because gravity, I mean, this is something I've thought very deeply about. Like, truth is kind of like maths. And, and I think that, you know, but maths, there's also theoretical maths as well. You know, we, we only, and, and we were talking about earlier about where, you know, there has to be some level of control. And I know we were saying that control is a bad thing. But like someone like Rousseau, he said that, you know, for a society to work, you have to give up some sort of element of your freedom in return for the sort of order and protection of the society, basically. And I, and I think that, 
you know, we, we only really, we, all of us know what a table is and all of us know what a chair is. And we only know that because at some point our, our forefathers and foremothers agreed that those were the words we were going to use in our language to call it that. But they don't call it a chair and a table in France or China or, you know, they, they call it something else. But we all, you know, you, you have to have some sort of agreed concept, basically. But truth is very subjective, basically. Mm. I, um, mm. the, you can't operate solely on the truth because life would be soulless and, and it would just be, it'd be like, you know, like Rain Man just reciting facts. But you, so you have to create a narrative, but I think the key is not to be controlled or trapped within the narrative. So you have to let the narrative go as soon as you, it doesn't work. Do you think emo emotional truth is actually possible? Because surely emotion, emotion and truth are kind of at odds with each other in a lot of ways. Well, the, the truth, I think you guide by your emotions. Your emotions tell you like how you feel. When you, when you feel bad, that's telling you that the narrative isn't working with the current reality. So you, you can't change the reality always, so you change the narrative you find a narrative that works within that context. So, but what you don't want is you don't want a narrative that's completely out of lot, that is, that can't work with the, the, the truth, the reality of your situation, because then that's when, you know, like someone who's, who's in a traumatic relationship, they're addicted to someone who isn't who they say they are, they, they lie, they cheat, they abuse, whatever. Um, and someone who has this narrative of I love, but I love them and I love them. So they're going to stay because that narrative is what's keeping them trapped. If you're willing to let go of that narrative and go, okay, like, I feel like shit. This relationship makes me feel terrible. I feel worse being in this relationship. Um, there's something wrong with that narrative. And then you, between the dissonance between the two of them, you navigate the new one. So when you use the word narrative, do you mean like the story that you're telling yourself as in the meaning that you, or what you're projecting onto the relationship? Yeah, yeah, and I think we have to understand it's all narrative. You know, even even like we're, we're trying to sort of base on science, but there are, in any scientific thing, it, it boils down to opinion. When you look at intelligence, there is the clearest evidence that 80% of intelligence is genetic but it won't be accepted because it's not politically correct because of what's gone in terms of eugenics and um, in America where there was uh, um, people treated, you know, like the imbecile moron, they were all classifications of IQ and people were sterilized below certain levels of IQ. And because of that, there are psychologists that just won't admit um, that intelligence is genetic. Yeah, but when you um, use the word narrative in, in the relationship sense, can you clarify what that means? Okay, so we have to navigate in relationships in terms of in terms of what um, we have to we have to have some story to operate by. You know, if we woke up every day and you go, well, how do I feel? 
um, who's this? Do you know what I mean? So you have a narrative, ah, oh, this is my partner. This is the person I love. This is the person. And so you have a narrative about family. What does family mean? And and one of the big differences, one of the real bones of co- the, the origins of conflict is we have different narratives about family, about relationship, about love. Um, and that means that we use the word and we use the word differently because we learned the word, whatever word we learned, we learned in a context, we were like two or three and we heard it being said in a certain context. So you mean like we have a different, we have a different expectation. So when I think uh, you are my partner, I expect one thing and you're thinking you're my partner, but you're expecting actually something different. And then that's the conflict. Yes. Cause we're not clear about the expectations. We're not clear about what that partner means definitions expectations um and what we both really want from it so the narrative really it's my perceptions it's my values it's what it means to me and and i'm overlaying that or projecting that onto this relationship yeah so so, okay so so um in terms of a working example when someone argues about the clothes on the floor that what they've really got is they've got a set of expectations about what they believe of their partner, how their partner would believe if they really love them. And all of that narrative um, plays into the relationship. Yeah, that, that's interesting because I think that if you loved me, you would behave like this. It, it's quite a powerful thing because when they don't behave like that, obviously we interpret it according to our narrative, which isn't necessarily their narrative. Yeah. And and the big one with that is then um, the fairy tale narrative, which is um, when you meet the one, you'll fall in love and you'll love forever. Um, they mustn't love me. They mustn't be the one. And that's the narrative that ends a lot of relationships that could work. And that's a way to close down discussion. <laughs> um, okay, I think we, we've gone over again, um, but unless anyone has any burning issues that we haven't already raised. Is it really the end or is it just your narrative is telling you that? I don't think we're really at the end, are we? Well, is that my narrative or is it your narrative? Or is, um, are, we, are we at the beginning of something? Let's see. Sarah, I thought you were at the end of the rainbow there. <laughs> I found my uh, my gold at the end yeah, of the you rainbow. Are gold, darling. <laughs> it's my robot. I found the robot at the end of the rainbow. I thought it was a leprechaun. I'm just stubbing, <laughs> I'm just stubbing my, my feet on Pete's lap through the screen. <laughs> <laughs>